Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Turmoil in different regions of the world has created a huge influx of refugees moving into Europe and towards the United States. This generated controversy about how many refugees to accept or whether to accept them at all. Despite that, the U.S. plans to take up to 85,000 refugees over the course of 2016. Once they come here, what happens to them? They live their lives here, including sending their children to school. That creates its own set of challenges. The Lancaster School District was recently sued over allegations that they unfairly forced refugee students into the Phoenix Academy and, quote, were subjected to boot camp style discipline. With me today to discuss the suit and the situation surrounding it is Keystone uh, WITF Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty. Emily, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. All right, Emily, I provided just a, a thumbnail <laughs> sketch of the suit, but right. what is this suit about? So the ACLU um, alleges that the school district of Lancaster is denying enrollment to students who are in their upper teens, um, so 16 or 17 and older, um, and then at the behest of caseworkers, sometimes over a period of months, they allow them to enroll, um, but, and this is student refugees, I should specify, right, I didn't right. know what you were talking mm-hmm. about. Um, they allow them to enroll. It's to Phoenix Academy, which they say does not offer the same time or degree of English language support that they would get at McCaskey, which is um, the district's, you know, the local high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're saying also that Phoenix has much stricter rules than at than than they would at McCaskey, including metal detectors. Um, Children have to wear one of two different color shirts that's coded to how they're behaving um, and a a host of other things, including a rule that prevents students from bringing almost anything in or out so they can't take books home, which for an accelerated credit program, I I imagine that impedes the degree of of acceleration, particularly for a a refugee student who's also trying to use to to learn the language and customs and things like that. So those are some of the allegations. Um, They also described that some of the students who excuse me, um, are, are at Phoenix at times that require like physical restraints um, from staff members that to the refugee students who may have sustained trauma um, during their, their, you know, fleeing their country of origin um, and making their way to the U.S. And that's particularly um, Traumatizing. traumatizing. Yeah. We're not traumatizing, but disturbing. We can say yeah. for for them, or at least that's what um, some of the client some of the clients reported to the attorneys in, in the suit. Mm-hmm. So d- before we get into what the the students, the refugee students, are actually uh, saying in the suit, talk a little bit about Phoenix Academy. I mean, you described it a little bit, but is this is Phoenix Academy somewhere where students? Who well, who are their students? Who are their typical students? So I've haven't been to Phoenix Academy, yeah. um, and uh, but one of the caseworkers who contacted me at the same time that she contacted the ACLU initially months ago, um, she described going to an orientation there where it almost seemed like it was a uh, a school for 
quote, last, you know, the last chance for children who have had academic or behavioral issues that may have prevented them from progressing in a timely fashion through through grade levels. And so this is an accelerated credit program. What the and the district says it's an accelerated credit program for those students to ensure they graduate on time. Um, so you know, their student it's high school students, um, who as I said are at risk for not graduating on time. From what the the caseworker described, they may also or it seems likely that they also have had some kind of history of behavioral issues as well. And as you said, uh, and it, I think this is mentioned, I don't know if it's mentioned in this suit, but it has been mentioned by uh, some of the students, that the refugee students, that there are metal detectors, yes. that uh, the students, I don't know whether this occurs all the time, but sometimes at least. And pat-downs that's, that's just what so I was going to say, is they're patted down. Metal detectors, a, you could find those at a public high school, right, generally, right. depending there are pat downs and on their way in every day too. Yeah, so I imagine that uh, this isn't exactly what these refugees pictured when they pictured coming to the United States. No, it's not. And I mean to be fair, and this was in a conversation with one of the students, um, and and the translator sort of acknowledged this and explained that the the translator himself had been a refugee, and he said, you know, we have this refugees imagine that they're going to come to America, and they picture sort of this, you know, idyllic place that it does not meet that expectation generally, um, but that the, the expectations are particularly high for, for education. Um, it's it's an exciting thing. It's something that when they hear that they're coming to the U.S. and it, it makes them even you know particularly hopeful when they're sort of sitting in this refugee camp and they're thinking about, okay, this is terrible. This is terrible. You know, I can't, I can't go home right now, but I'm going to make my way to the U.S. with my family, and uh, you know their educational system is one of the best in the world. And then to have this experience, I think, was actually pretty devastating for some of these kids who I interviewed because they. You actually interviewed some of the kids. I did, yeah. Uh huh. What did you learn? I mean, well, so one of the things is that they were just incredibly disappointed because they had these aspirations to upon learning that they were going to be resettled in the U.S. This kind of opened up a whole new world for them as, you know, well, I'm going to the U.S. where I can be anything I want to be and there's free public education and I'm going to work, I want to work really hard to learn the language and do well in school and become a doctor or a lawyer or a police officer are some of the aspirations that I that I heard from from these kids who uh, were either contemplating dropping out or had dropped out. Now, where are the students from? By the way, are there six or seven? Because I've there seen, are six. Okay, because I've seen there were, two different. There uh, were seven. Yeah. Um, a Nepalese student who was originally represented in the suit no longer is going to be. Um, but then there are there are a set of sisters from um, from Burma, uh, two brothers from uh, the Demo- Democratic Republic of the Congo, and then there's a Sudanese student and an Egyptian student. So just what you just described there, um, many people are probably thinking we're talking students, uh, refugees from Syria or, you know, some other Middle Eastern country. And what you just described, uh, you know, there's no Middle Eastern countries there other than Egypt. And that's not exactly one where there are a lot of refugees coming from. Well, and, you know, for a, a previous story that I did about how Lancaster does receive a lot of refugees, which we are going to talk about a little bit right. later, um, mm-hmm. you know, the experience that the Sir- older Syrian refugee students who I interviewed from this one family were having with the school system initially, 
um, within the first several months that they had arrived was not this experience. So you can't, this isn't everyone. Um, when you say didn't have an experience, meaning they didn't they were, go to Phoenix? They were at McCaskey okay. and, you know, I mean, who knows? I'm one of the students who, the Nepalese student who was dropped from the student is no longer being represented, also was at McCaskey High School initially and ended up at Phoenix, which led to him dropping out and all of this other stuff. So, um, so we'll see what happens. Um, uh, also, younger students don't seem to have this experience. Um, there seems to be maybe because the district has more time with them. I'm, I'm not really sure, but younger students, there seems there don't seem to be the same issues um, reported. Mm -hmm. Now, the suit itself, on what grounds is, is the suit being filed? Sure. So um, basically there are federal laws that say, you know, there, there's the Federal Educational Oppor Equal Educational Opportunity Act, which says, you know, you can't discriminate based on race or national origin. Um, you have to offer an equitable, equitable educational opportunity to everyone. And the failure to do so could include the failure to take appropriate steps to um, overcome a language barrier that otherwise might be impeding that equitable education experience. So that's one. Um, there are state laws that require from registration to enrollment that take no longer than five days. In this case, it's taken months. Um, another a state issue is, uh, you know, well, there's also the civil rights issue due to what they're saying is lack of due process. Um, and there are international treaties that the U.S. is a party to that specify host countries have to give refugee students the same um, opportunity to have a free public education that, uh, you know, a child born in the U.S. may have. So those are those are some of the things. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, there, I'm sure there are. Some even listen to this program. So you know what? We have a hard enough time educating the students who grew up in these districts, let alone bringing refugees in. And, and you know, especially I, I'm curious as to whether, uh, you know, because when most of the students who come into Lancaster, Reading, other stu uh, school districts here in Pennsylvania, uh, English as a second language, their primary language is Spanish. The languages that you're talking about with these refugees, is the school district equipped to, to be able to teach those students? Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's an excellent point. And that's a question that I was asking. Um, now, the law requires that, that schools overcome those barriers. And that's a huge task. I mean, I don't think anyone, I mean, I think that's important here. And, it, you know, we're going to discuss it. And I think that when I did the first story, I tried to hit that point, it's not like the school isn't faced with a monumental task of educating students of all of these different backgrounds and um, languages of origin. So uh, one thing that um, I found, and this goes into the root cause of sort of why this is happening, one thing that I found was a surprising what seemed to be lack of coordination ahead of students' arrival. I, there is a lot of coordination as far as finding housing and jobs for families generally, but when it came to education specifically, that doesn't seem like it's something that is coming up as much as you would think it would. You, it Why? Would. What did I you don't, find? So the national 
resettlement agencies, they all have representatives on this board called um, uh, Refugees Coal- Refu- excuse me, Refugee Coalition USA. The head of that, I asked her about this, and she said, you know, the education level of students isn't really something, a, a detail or piece of information that comes up until pretty late in the resettlement process, usually after they've already been assigned a country and even a city, and that generally that's something that's coordinated at the state and local level. So at the state level, the person who heads the Office of Refugee Resettlement said, well, we really focus on jobs and housing, and education isn't something we focus on as much. It's not something that we track. And at the, at, you know, the district's uh, English language learner's uh, supervisor said she doesn't, she's not really involved in that coordination. She assumed the national refugee resettlement agencies were were more responsible for that. And so that was surprising. Uh, it's something that I definitely would like to continue to delve into because it sort of it doesn't make sense. Um, and, you know, to to her credit, Charlotte Fry, the uh, head of the State Office of Refugee Resettlement, when I went back a few weeks after our initial conversation to follow up and see, you know, about any updates or, or whatever, she said that she was looking at putting in, in place a tracking system to track educational outcomes because I was asking her about this and she didn't have the answers. And I think that that she felt like that bothered her and that she was concerned about this. And so, you know, you have to, I'm curious to see what that's going to look like. And we'll we'll go back to that, of course, but just to, I don't want to make it seem like I'm asking these questions and people just sort of disregard, um, you know, she she seemed like she was taking steps to to address it. So let's take a phone call from Jean in Columbia. Jean, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, Just started cutting in and out. Um, I agree. Uh, sending them to the Phoenix School is is a, is terribly wrong. That that was, my memory serves me correctly, opened up for students who weren't at risk. You know, like they're, they they don't they have behavioral problems. They late you know skip school. Yada yada yada. I do think that's terribly wrong. Now, McCaskey has um, I, I don't know if many people where it does have a third floor. And uh, it's been a lot of years, more than I care to admit, since I've been in McCaskey. But that used to be set aside for the English as a second language, and they didn't use very much of that floor. Now, I don't see why they can't be issued, you know, small computers and an English learning language such as Rosetta Stone. You, ha- you can have a teacher who doesn't necessarily doesn't have to know, they don't have to know a lot of English to be able to, you know, they're going to behave themselves. Just have a teacher to, like, monitor the area. Take it down and, you know, take, you know, spend some time in the library. You know, take lunch with the other students and that to get some immersion in that. They can each learn at their own speed. Which, All right, so, uh, Gene, you... And, and it would be, it would probably be a real eye-opener for a lot of our students who are so lazy. <laughs> hey, Gene, thank you very much for your call. Space, is that an issue? Do you know of? Not that I'm... Not that I'm aware of, although the you know her point about a third floor and sort of a separate space. Some of the programs that you know I asked the question of people who are looking this at this on a national level. What who's doing it right? It seems like this is this really tough thing. So who who does it well? And they referred me to a few different um, programs in Oakland and in Houston, obviously much larger cities than Lancaster. However, when you looked at the enrollment numbers in these programs, they weren't, the the difference was not what you would expect compared to population because as we know, Lancaster for its population resettles an incredibly high number of refugees. Let's talk about Um, that in in just a moment. Uh, You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest is WITF Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty. We're talking about a lawsuit filed against the city of Lancaster, school district of Lancaster, I should say, uh, having to do with refugee students. And uh, we just have a few more minutes left. Emily, before we went away, you were talking about Lancaster taking a lot of refugee students. For a city its size, it does. Yeah, it does. And, um, you know, I I think it's at least 500 a year. In recent years, it's been over 600, close to seven, rivaling cities that are much larger, including Philadelphia, well over the number of refugees resettled in Pittsburgh. Um, and our last caller made the point about extra space. Not an issue that I'm necessarily aware of. However, she made a point about a separate space for student refugees. Um, the exemplary programs, when you ask people who look at this at a national level, who does it right, Oakland, Houston, um, those are separate programs. However, the um, the they're not taking every single student refugee into the separate program. So I have interviews pending with people involved um, in those programs in both of those cities. So a solutions or strategies story that's forthcoming will sort of drill down onto why that works and what the limitations are and could it be replicated in Lancaster. As you see, we, uh, as Emily and we try to do here at WITF, make some comparisons uh, to bring some context uh, to these things. Are other districts across the country watching what's going on with this lawsuit? Um, I don't, I mean, that's a good question. I'm not sure. I imagine that they may be uh, because the there was a there have been multiple studies from the Migration Policy Institute as well as a very recent one that was a collaboration between Georgetown Law's Human Rights Institute and a separate nonprofit called the Women's uh, Refugee Commission. They found that all of those studies have found that there's educational access issues for English language learners generally, including refugees, and particularly when it comes to older students. So, a, if a district I imagine that, yeah, they, they would be watching this. Similar lawsuits have been filed in multiple districts in New York and Florida. So we'll just have to see how, how this one plays out. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that you did find, and I found this interesting, and the big question is, why? Why would a district do this? What are some of the reasons that you found? Well, or at um, least the allegations of why it occurs. So... The, one of the allegations um, is, uh, ooh, sorry. Um, <laughs> so translation can be expensive, and that that's an issue, you know. And this isn't just specific to refugees. A lot of the a lot of this this stuff. It's just that um, in this particular case, it was a refugee caseworker who came forth and uh, was frustrated and started reaching out to people outside of her organization, including the ACLU. Um, so translation is expensive. Um, Schools get some, you talked about, you know, we barely, you asked the question about barely having enough money to educate students born here. Um, refugees, there, you know, f there is some federal funding that's meant to help pay for the additional students who are enrolling due to resettlement, um, but it's not a lot. So we talked about it. Lancaster has estimated 500 student refugees in the district. They get $150,000 a year for that. That's barely enough to hire two teachers. That's not that's not a lot of money, and that's not just me editorializing. That the, That's a quote from the Office of Refugee Resettlement in Pennsylvania. So there, money is an issue, as it is for, like, everything. Um, right. But, uh, you know, there's also the issue of graduation rates. I wasn't really able to tie 
And, and that was a head scratcher for me because I thought, okay, is there like funding directly tied to education rates? And there's not, but it is a factor in a school performance profile score. It's a it's a reputation thing. Uh, if the school district is on a, a, a watch list or in you know has been warned about its performance, that that may become a factor. And so when you have students enrolling who it would be particularly challenging to get them to learn the language and graduate by the age of 21, which is where it cuts off in Pennsylvania. The closer they are to that age, the the more intense the pressure on the school district. So the school district has not um, filed an answer yet. I interviewed the ELL coordinator and the superintendent prior to the filing of the lawsuit, but you know, all three of us were aware that it was going to be coming soon, and and they didn't feel that they. They recognized the general issues and challenges. However, they they felt that they were meeting them properly and following the law was their mm. statement at that time. Well, Emily Previty is a WITF's Keystone Crossroads reporter. Emily, thank you very much for bringing this up to date, and you'll continue working on mm-hmm. this, right? Yep. Okay. Thanks Monday, for having we'll me, Scott. Keystone Crossroads is a statewide public media initiative reporting on the challenges facing Pennsylvania cities. WESA, WITF, WPSU are contributing stations. WHYY is leading the four-station partnership. The project is funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and regionally by the law firm of McNeese, Wallace, and Newark. And as you're well aware... Democratic National Convention this week, and uh, it wrapped up last night. Uh, It wrapped up last night with Hillary Clinton accepting the nomination for president. WITF's Radio Pennsylvania reporter Rachel McDevitt was in Philadelphia all week speaking with the Pennsylvania delegation and covering the protests and other, other events surrounding the convention. She's with me now to give us a recap and her impressions of the week. Rachel, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. All right. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, Rachel, is because you were all over the place in Philadelphia, that uh, you not only were on the floor in the Wells Fargo Center, but you were out on the streets talking to some of the protesters, some of the events uh, of of the week. So what were your impressions of the last four or five days? Oh, well, it was uh, pretty hot. Yeah, we know that, yeah. That was a prevailing uh, impression as I spoke to uh, delegates and other reporters there uh, covering things out on the street. Um, But my impressions, I mean, it's just, it was a really interesting thing for me to be a part of such a huge event. This is definitely the first convention I've ever covered, um, first event of this kind of size. Um, On the inside, you know, on the inside of the convention, they were really trying to spread a message of, party unity, bringing people together around Hillary Clinton, the nominee, um, trying to appeal to Bernie Sanders supporters and you know, bringing them over to that side. Um, my impressions from the outside, though, were that um, you know the people on the inside of the party still have a lot of work to do because people that really love Bernie Sanders are not, really not ready to give up on him or an alternative candidate. Um, so some of the protests I saw, um, most of what I saw was peaceful. I think they were peaceful overall throughout the city during the week, um, but they they were not happy that Hillary was going to be the nominee, and they really want to see some more, um, you know, left leaning policies, you know, a better point, a, a better or more clear plan maybe for um, college debt and criminal mm-hmm. justice reform. Well, even and that held true even through last night. I mean, uh, the reports overall is that the party became a little more unified uh, as the week went on. But even as uh, Hillary Clinton spoke last night, you had some hecklers from the Sanders campaign. Did did you notice that? 
Yeah, I noticed some hecklers um, shouting from the stands. I couldn't make out from where I was what they were saying. Um, and then I did notice that some Bernie Sanders supporters did walk out during her speech. I saw some of them uh, doing interviews, but they were they were really isolated. It was really just a handful of Bernie. I'm not sure if they were even delegates or if they were just supporters. There were a lot of guests in the Wells Fargo Center. Um, on Tuesday, there was a much larger walkout, you know, a few hundred of his supporters um, after the nomination, the official nomination, the roll call vote, um, which you know, made Hillary Clinton officially the nominee. Um, several hundred of them did march out through the halls of, of the Wells Fargo Center chanting. Uh, they went outside. They occupied the media tent for a little while. Um, so that was a much larger event. I didn't see anything like that last mm-hmm. night. So how was uh, Secretary Clinton's uh, acceptance speech accepted last night inside the arena? I think, I mean, inside the arena, she's facing a very friendly audience. I think they were all just very happy to hear her, and they were definitely happy to hear her talk about herself in a way that's making her, you know, appealing, that is, you know, trying to share her life story or the reasons that she's, you know, going into into this, that she has served in uh, the public for, for so long. Did you think uh, she? Do you think she achieved that last night? That you know, people were talking. We had talked with Dr. Terry Madonna all the week, and Terry kept saying that she had to humanize herself, make her, herself, uh, you know, more empathetic, more uh, friendly, more approachable. Did you get that sense uh, from the delegates or the people in the hall that uh, she did that? Um, I I think so. I did speak to a delegate for her in the Pennsylvania delegation last night before she spoke, and she was saying that she really expected um, Hillary Clinton to speak a lot about um, her work with children um, and some of the other issues that she cares about that makes her who she is. And I think Hillary did that to a point, but she also had a lot of help. Um, so there was, you know, her daughter Chelsea introduced her. You know, that really, you know, seeing Hillary Clinton as a mother. Um, could definitely humanize her, I guess, for lack of a better word. I know. I, I hate that word, really, <laughs> yeah. quite frankly. Yeah. But, all right, let's talk about some of the other things that you covered uh, during the week. Uh, other than the protest outside uh, the building, in fact, I understand you have a story coming up this weekend about a group of children and what they want to see in the future. Yeah, yeah. I did go to this event with Mighty Writers of Philadelphia. They um, held a pretty large event on the steps of the art museum, the Rocky Steps. Um, They were playing the Rocky theme at one point, which was appropriate. (laughs) Well, you have to Uh, do that, you know? (laughs) If you're going to go, you have to play the theme. Um, So they were trying to set a world record for the largest um, mass essay writing. And so there were, it looked like a few hundred kids, that participated in the Mighty Writer program. Also, some you know others came in from camps. Their parents brought them. Um, so they had like a writing lesson, and then they wrote for 15 minutes on the theme, "If I Were President." And the results, I do not think, are official yet. I actually checked with uh, Mighty Writers yesterday, but uh, Guinness Book of World Records had a representative on site, and they weren't able to immediately verify that they broke the record. Um, but we should get those results in a few days. But what was really interesting to me is that some of these kids are just so. So grown up, they're really thinking forward. I spoke to an eight-year-old who um, wanted to see more uh, gun safety regulations, who you know, wanted to help stop violence in his neighborhood. Um, 
and it was just it was really touching to me that this eight-year-old because I was not as as involved when I was eight he said he talks to his parents about the election you know he's paying attention he wants to see these things happen Hmm. Um, Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, you don't, your typical eight-year-old isn't thinking along those lines. Did you get an opportunity to talk to some of the other students and and what they were saying? Yeah, I spoke to a 12-year-old boy named Javon who was very unhappy with the soda tax uh, (laughs) recently passed in In Philadelphia. Right, right. So he he said that didn't make much sense to him. He didn't really understand um, why that was going on. And if he were president, he said he would... Uh, make it so that no laws that didn't make any sense got passed. That was sort of a, a lighter topic. He was also really concerned about education funding, though. Um, but he, he said the way he would do it is he would um, redistribute money from the military into education funding. Uh, so that was something he wanted to do. Um, I saw another, um, was his, I think he was 11, another little boy that was 11, and uh, his his solution to stopping violence was to just give everybody pepper spray. So. <laughs> I don't know whether that would work or not, but at least you know, the, I, the, the kids I, are thinking about it anyway. They are thinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were, there were lots of ideas. One little girl wanted to paint the White House in My Little Ponies. Oh, um, okay. But then there were also just some really well-spoken, really thoughtful young people who you know, they really wanted to help. They you know, Using words like you know, the school-to-prison pipeline, they wanted to end that. They wanted to Put money, put more money into education, make college tuition free, um, do what they could to stop violence. Mm. Um, there were very thoughtful young people there. So, Rachel, we only have about a minute or so left. Uh, if you were writing a summary about uh, this convention this week, uh, what were the major points? What would the highlights be? Oh, um, the highlights. I mean, for me, as a as a reporter being there covering for my first time, I mean, the highlights were kind of just the emotions that got, I was swept up in this. And some people there for Hillary Clinton were just so excited. I met this um, this woman from Allegheny County who was a delegate for Bill Clinton, who was a delegate for Hillary in 2008. And she was just, she called it an honor, just an honor to see a woman nominated to be president. And then on the, the contrast, people out in the streets just yelling about how corrupt the system is and how angry they are about about their voting system, about their future, about the policies they want to see, and they're not sure if they're going to go anywhere. And just seeing these contrasts of emotions was, um, is it was touching. It was overwhelming at points. Um, but that was that was my takeaway. Rachel McDevitt is reporter for WITF's Radio Pennsylvania Network. Rachel, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. We're going to hear about uh, Muhammad Ali. Died earlier this year, died in June, uh, as a spokesperson for black athletes. Boxing champion Muhammad Ali, not just an incredible athlete, Ali was outspoken when it came to race and religion in America at a time when few, if any, black athletes spoke up. His national prominence and actions pioneered the way for other black athletes to enter the realms of politics and activism. Dickinson College visiting assistant professor Gregory Callis, Gregory Callis is here to speak about Ali, the history of social action amongst black athletes, and his book, Men's College athletics and the politics and racial equality, five pioneer stories of black manliness, white citizenship, and American democracy. Professor Callis, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here, Scott. Thanks. We we actually talked about the book a a while back, but uh, have to admit that uh, when I think of black athletes who uh, 
had a voice socially, had a voice when they talked about racial issues, had a voice talking about religion. Muhammad Ali was the first one that came to mind. Talk about Ali's place and what a pioneer he was. Yeah, I mean, I think Ali is so important to American culture in a whole lot of ways. But if we think about the connection of athletes and activism, Ali is right at the forefront. And there certainly had been athletes who had spoken out on issues before him, Jackie Robinson, for right. example, and, and you know even Bill Russell to some extent. But Ali opened up the floodgates in some way. And I, and I think, for me, the most extraordinary moment of Ali's career is, is in February of 1964, after he wins the heavyweight title. He beats Sonny Liston. And you think about it, he's a charismatic guy. He had won a gold medal in 1960. He's at the top of the world. And, you know, two days later, he announces that he's converting to the Nation of Islam, which was wildly unpopular amongst most Americans. And uh, he wants people to stop calling him Cassius Clay. Again, tremendously unpopular. And uh, he has this amazing statement where he says, I, I don't have to be what you want me to be. I'm, you know, I'm free to do what I want. And I think that was a kind of declaration of independence, and it inspired a whole range of people to realize that, uh, you know, athletes didn't have to play along with the media. They didn't have to play along with the establishment that they could follow the courage of their convictions because those were unpopular things. And, of course, his opposition to the Vietnam War was tremendously unpopular amongst many uh, when, when he refused to be drafted. But he uh, seemed to be willing to sacrifice a lot for his beliefs. And I think that inspired a whole range of, of athletes. And I know it did. If you, if you read what other athletes say about him and how inspirational he was in that regard. Well, give me some examples. Uh, <clears throat> certainly. Somebody like Arthur Ashe, even, who was a more modest activist, but talked about seeing what Ali did and realizing that he couldn't he couldn't sort of sit back on the sideline and not get involved in some ways, that he admired Ali, even if he didn't agree with Ali, he admired him and it made him realize that he needed to do more. And, and that helped inspire him to, to conduct a campaign against apartheid in South Africa. Uh, in more modern days, people like LeBron James writing in to say how inspirational Ali had been to him and, and thinking about the place uh, that, that black athletes or all athletes could occupy as kind of cultural forces for change. I think um, just a, a couple off the top of my head. You know, today, and uh, Ali's funeral services will be uh, tomorrow, um, but in the weeks since he passed away, um, there's just been overwhelming an outpouring of you know, honoring him, black and white, around the world. He's been called, uh, well, he called himself, and uh, many people would agree, was the greatest uh, boxer of all time. Yeah. Although there are other people who are father with the sport closer say, eh, he wasn't the greatest, probably top two or three, something like that. But still, he's been honored, all kinds of accolades coming his way. But going back to 1964, it wasn't that way. And part of it was because the way he said it, that you know, white America in particular, and I don't know about black America, but white America in particular is, who was this black guy yelling, he's the greatest, and, you know, he just beat, okay, he won a fight. He beat the heavyweight champion of the world. Now he is the champion. But kind of for, you know, I know that we have people who were born after 1964 listening to the program. What was it like at that time? Well, I think it right. I mean, I think his his confidence, his outspokenness, I think it shocked people. And, and the model before Ali of the longtime you know, black heavyweight champion, the most esteemed champion before Ali was Joe Lewis. Mm -hmm. And Joe Lewis, tremendously popular, but he was a guy who was very quiet, was very modest. I mean, he was a 
tremendous boxer, but a guy who really uh, emphasized kind of keeping a low profile deliberately. You know, he refused to take pictures with white women because of, you know, didn't want to alienate any potential, you know, white Americans who were uncomfortable with that. I mean, he was a guy who really toned down his act. And so Ali was, you know, the opposite in terms of being demonstrative, in terms of being outspoken, of being so celebratory of himself. And, and I think it was shocking to people, right? Yeah, that this was a guy who was, as I say, it was a kind of declaration of independence. I am a, a person. I am going to say what I want to say. I'm going to be who I want to be. I'm not going to be restrained. Um, and there had been other people like that, but I think what made Ali distinct was that he had that sense of being independent, but it was linked to to a set of beliefs. It was linked to a set of, a sense of, of, of righteousness, of morality, right? His faith, and his his opposition to the war and those kinds of things. And I have a a, a soundbite here. We're going to play for you in a few minutes, uh, talking about the, the Vietnam War and the draft. Uh, but let's talk about uh, his Muslim faith. As you said, two days after he beat Sonny Liston, uh, he announces that uh, he's converting to Nation of Islam, becoming a member of the Nation of Islam, um, and you know he pulls no punches, so to speak. I shouldn't even use that. Um, <laughs> In saying that um, white America is really his enemy, and I mean, he, he used those words exactly, but many times when he talked about it, talked about how white people were really what was the, the problem against blacks in this country. That was so unpopular at the time. Oh, tremendously unpopular. It would be unpopular today, but at the it, time, then, it was it was even worse. Yeah, that's right. And, and the Nation of Islam... Just a little background for those who are unfamiliar, but the Nation of Islam at that time, especially, this was a religion that really was based on, uh, at the time, its tenants sort of depicted white people as oppressors across the globe, as an equi- you know, they often use the phrase devils. And this was, I mean, tremendously controversial, tremendously controversial for not only white Americans, but also black Americans, the, the, especially African Americans in the, the black Christian churches who were very anti the nation of Islam. Yeah, let me just interrupt. I mean, for some historical perspective, Malcolm X, Nation of Islam, Martin Luther King, and Jackie Robinson were not happy with how Malcolm X talked about uh, you know civil rights at the time. Absolutely right, and so uh, so so there was again when you think about that outspokenness of Ali, it was an unpopular outspokenness, and it was one that he right he was unapologetic in calling out. Uh, white America for creating uh, a set of circumstances that victimized black people. And and just the way that Malcolm X uh, had argued in a lot of his uh, speeches. And so this was, and that's why in that press conference, in some ways, I think a lot of the journalists were trying to, to kind of convince Muhammad Ali that to, to, to take it back and, and to say, you know, to step back from that that position, but he refused to do so, right? I mean, he was, uh, you know, and and it's, you know, you might say, well, why did he believe that? Or, or how much did he believe that? And this is a guy who, when he came back from the Olympics, a national hero, after he had played the part of a kind of compliant athlete, he had talked positively about the United States and said that, you know, in terms of the Cold War, he'd rather be living in the U.S. because, you know, even though African-Americans had a tough time, people were working on it. I mean, he had been positive. Comes back to, you know, he has victory parades comes back to his hometown of Louisville, goes to a restaurant. They refuse to serve him in his hometown because he's black. They use racial epithets against him. Uh, insult to injury. He leaves the restaurant, and, and a group of white bikers starts harassing him and his friends. And it's no wonder that he begins to, 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 to harbor some animosities. And, of course, later in his life, 
you know, by the time the mid-1970s rolls around, the Nation of Islam has really migrated away from that and becomes more, much more traditional uh, Islamic faith and, and abandons a lot of that the kind of racial language that it had in earlier years. And Ali himself shows that evolution as well. But, but in that moment, I think there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of mistrust, quite frankly, of white America. So the Vietnam War was raging at the time when we go from uh, 64 to like uh, 1967, 68, uh, and Ali refuses to, to be drafted. And I want to play something for you here. This was from a college campus where he was actually debating with a group of white students. And this is a, a soundbite of Ali talking to those students. All of you white boys are breaking your neck to get to Switzerland and Canada and London. I'm not going to help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm going to die, I'll die now right here fighting you. If I'm going to die, you my enemy. My name is a white people, not Vietcongs or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs, and you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. What do you think? Well, I think it was uh, it's a great example of, of, of that vibrancy of Ali and of that, the controversial nature of Ali. And I will say... Um, Ali was actually wildly popular on college campuses uh, to some extent because he opposed the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Black and white students, I think, really registered with that. And it is amazing to think about that because Ali's in that speech criticizing white America. Presumably a lot of the people in the audience are white. Almost all of them that I saw, yeah. Yeah. And and here, you know, here he is just laying it on them. But um, I think there was a recognition that there was something unjust about uh, the Vietnam War and about asking black Americans who were the victims of oppression to do to, to participate in this war um, and certainly some some inequalities in terms of what, what Ali talked about with religion saying you don't recognize my freedom of religion and um, the fact that he was convicted of uh, draft evasion despite being what he said was a conscientious objector as a result of his faith and and I just it's an amazing uh, I think an amazing chapter in history when we think about it and eventually the public begins to shift to Ali's side. But but at first, there's a lot of pushback against him, and, and especially older Americans, middle-aged Americans who had fought in World War II. Who had fought in World War II. And, and some of those folks, and I'll say there's probably people listening right now who still think of Ali in a negative light for refusing to serve. Mm -hmm. I know when Ali lit the Olympic torch in 1996, Bob Feller, the uh, baseball player, was a big critic of that, saying that they shouldn't honor a, a draft dodger. Mm -hmm. um, so... Uh, so it's still controversial to some extent, but but I think a lot of people, you know, as opinion turned against the war, opinion turned towards Muhammad Ali in that mm. regard. Along those same lines as uh, that soundbite, um, he famously said that no Vietnam, no Viet Cong ever called me the N word. Yeah. Uh, so why would I want to go and fight when uh, he was making the point, making the comparison here in this country? But I want to go ahead a, a little bit, as I say, a little further ahead in time. Um, especially uh, when Ali was fighting Joe Frazier. That first fight, Joe Frazier, I, I mean, today, for those who remember it, it was just incredible. I mean, the amount of hype that that got. It wasn't on television. Uh, I was telling you a story about, uh, well, it was on closed circuit, I think, at that time, mm -hmm. uh, but not on network television. But anyway, that uh, the, the entire country was just glued Following this, it was going to be the, the fight of the century. It probably was when you when you think about it. But 
some of the criticisms of Ali or some of the things pointed out in the past week since he died is how he treated Joe Frazier, um, calling him a gorilla, uh, saying he was an Uncle Tom. And Joe Frazier, to, to the day he died, even though people tried to bring them back together, to the day he died, Joe Frazier resented Ali for how he was treated. So Ali, and actually I even heard a case, a uh, story of Chuck Wepner was a white uh, boxer who said that uh, Ali wanted him to uh, call him the N-word, and he refused to do it. They went on the Mike Douglas show, and Ali whispered in Douglas's ear that this is what he called me. And Wepner said, that never happened. That wasn't true. I, didn't, I never did that. So Ali wasn't, you know, he wasn't a saint, put it that way. No, but... He was always interested in drumming up attention and drumming up the gate. He knew that if he created hoopla around him, created hype and buzz, it, it would lead to more financial opportunities, more entertainment. He saw himself as an entertainer and an athlete. And I think that's one of the lasting legacies of Ali, right? That not just uh, athletics, but the idea of the athletic as a celebrity and an entertainer. And he drew from... Um, a professional wrestler. He watched a professional wrestler named Gorgeous George and oh, saw how oh, he saw how people responded to him and 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 realized that he he kind of started to copy that as a way of getting more attention. Um, but yeah, it could be very heartful and it could be uh, done in ways that you know. Certainly, Joe Frazier is a great example of that Joe Frazier said that if he had been at the Olympics in '96, he would have pushed Ali into the torch when oh, he was really? lighting it. I didn't hear that. Yeah, that's one of his lines. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was. I mean, uh, Ali would would call Frazier an Uncle Tom. Said that anyone who supports Frazier is an Uncle Tom. Would make fun of the way he spoke. I mean, he could be really mean spirited and and. Uh, in ways that I think are, are hard to kind of come to terms with now. And that fight was a huge event. It was, uh, put it this way, one of the great stories about that fight is that Frank Sinatra got a media pass to take photographs for Life magazine because he couldn't get tickets to get into the fight yeah. any other way. Yeah. Um, it was at Madison Square Garden. And right. Just in, in, there was Super Bowl-type hype with that before there were... So, just think if there was social media back in those days, what that would have been like. Oh, it would have been wild. Absolutely. Uh, Twitter would have exploded. It would have. We have an email here from Tim who brings up a good point because uh, in the last week, we've heard about uh, Ali training at Deer Lake in uh, Schuylkill County. And Tim Tim wants to know, did Ali experience comment on racism during the time he spent in Pennsylvania? I believe he had a training camp at Schuylkill County at one point. Uh, and I've heard a number of stories, and it kind of just poses what you had just described about Ali the showman. So many stories of people talking about they would just show up at Deer Lake to watch him train, and he would take them around, showing them very friendly joking with them and all that totally different person so but have you heard of any stories in Schuylkill County that uh, where he exper experienced racism I have not I mean not in particular in that location um, you know he would talk in general terms about you know having some people say nasty things to him but I, I can't recall anything specifically in that in that location but he was he was an extreme extrovert in the sense that yeah he was always willing to talk to somebody, take a picture with somebody, pose with somebody, very friendly. And even with Frazier, that's one of the a great example of this. Frazier, he says all these horrible things about. He says that, you know, it's it's he calls Joe Frazier the great white hope, mm -hmm. which is the tremendous irony there, right? But then, you know, if you in, in his quieter moments after the fight, after the first fight, after Frazier beats Ali, he says, you know, I got beat, 
Um, anyway, it's, it's too bad. Joe Frazier's a nice guy. He's got good kids. You know, when it, when it was when the, the spotlight was turned off, he was, you know, he, he switched from being entertainer to being himself, uh, and it was a different kind of uh, a different kind of person, I guess. But so we're we've been hearing a lot in the last week, and we'll hear much more tomorrow uh, at his uh, funeral service. Uh, but uh, about Ali's legacy. But let's narrow it down a little bit. His legacy, as far as um, you know, a social, religion, racial. How do you see his legacy? I see his legacy as somebody who really transformed sport, transformed the relationship between sports and race, and and transformed the uh, the, the the role that the athlete plays as a kind of social and, and cultural and political force. I mean, I think. Um, as I said at the outset, it's it's almost inconceivable to think about some of the activism that came after Ali without Ali. That he really did, you know, we think about the Black Power salute in 1968. At the Olympics, Mexico City. At the Olympics, Mexico right? City. There's no way that that happens without Ali doing what he did, without Ali converting to Islam, defying the draft. He ignited a spark. And... You know, you might say that that flame went out for a little while in the in the 80s and the 90s, but I think we see embers of that. What we talked about back in the fall with the University of Missouri football protests, mm-hmm. with uh, you know players like LeBron James wearing "I Can't Breathe" T-shirts, with you know that sense of of a social commitment and of using athletic clout and prominence to really lobby on behalf of issues, even if they're unpopular. And I think that's a really um, that that's the most important aspect, I think, of, of, of his legacy in that regard. I hope I'm not asking the same question. We have about a minute left, yeah. but would the civil rights movement have been different without a Muhammad Ali? I certainly think it would have been different. I mean, you know, this is, of course, uh, it's hard to say, right? right but but right. yeah, but I mean, I think if we think about it, when Ali makes his, his, his declaration of his faith in 64, Black power really starts circulating in 1966. I mean, he's right at that moment, and he, I think, helps instigate that emergence of black power, helps instigate some of the transformations that come. The whole Black is Beautiful campaign, people wearing afros, um, uh, black history departments in college. I mean, I think he's central to a lot of those things happening. He's not the only one, but he again, helps ignite that spark. I have to admit, admit that just sitting here, I can't picture that time period without Muhammad Ali. Yeah. I can't. I just can't do it. Gregory Callis is uh, the uh, Dickinson College Visiting Professor, Assistant Professor of History. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And that was uh, from earlier this summer, the week that uh, Muhammad Ali uh, passed away, and as you heard, several references to uh, his funeral for the next day. But... Uh, uh, was something that, uh, hey, you know, when we look back at the year 2016, the death of Muhammad Ali will be one of the uh, seminal events. Coming up on uh, Monday's program, Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale talking about nursing homes. That's coming up.